welcome to defen episode number 52 with gary fredericks is that did i pronounce it right sure yeah ah nice so um this is vijay from holland we're from belgium and gary and, uh, from somewhere I'm, i'm from chicago chicago yeah. right is it the windy city uh, yeah i i guess so yeah is it windier than holland it can't be windier than I've holland i've never been to holland um, okay then it is fucking windy here <laughs> I, i don't know if it's particularly windy uh, it it could mean something else uh, oh didn't 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 it used to be quite windy before all the development so because it's in a certain part of the country i wasn't i wasn't here then it's a very <laughs> flat part of the country <laughs> Uh, oh, Ray was there. The geography, I hear. <laughs> Ray was Ray was there because was you know it was all Pantia. It's like the one one continent. The yeah, exactly. He was walking. When I, when I was when I was strolling the earth, you know. <laughs> what is it called again? Pangea or Pantia? Pangea, probably. Pangea, Pangea. Yeah, yeah. That's what we Pangea, called it yeah. anyway back in just the one day. So, um what's happening? Oh yeah, okay. Um closure. So Gary, yep. uh, please so how did you get into closure? Maybe give us a bit of introduction about yourself and then you know tell us Yeah. tell us what you're doing these days and uh, how did you end up here? Uh here like like on the podcast you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> everything everything <laughs> you know all, culminated all to this roads moment lead to Rome. All closure code leads to Defen. Yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> Uh so I I guess it was maybe 10 years ago I was first starting off in uh, software development and by coincidence I ended up working for uh a guy who was interested in new languages um and he just told me to go learn closure and ruby and uh scala and erlang um so I was just learning like all of those within the space of 6 months and not not using most of them for anything serious um but uh, what kind of gig was that by the way because you know <laughs> I, I'm, I, i've never heard of that like kind languages. of approach yeah. to literally <laughs> yeah. anything you know <laughs> well I, i mean i was working for uh, for government um so ah, it didn't really okay, okay. it didn't like nobody else there was doing that but like right, the right. particular guy that was telling me what to do um you know he was interested in languages um and you know we like we ended up writing some code that got rewritten later in a a more standard language um so it wasn't it wasn't stuff that lasted there for very long um but but that was how i got into it um and and i guess i i, I don't really know remember like my impression of those languages at the time but, but somehow closure ended up being the thing that that stuck more than anything else hmm. um so i've and i've been using it professionally since then um sometimes more sometimes less we usually like a lot of ruby code nearby um so I, i'm familiar with that too um but uh i spent a lot of time on like irc in yeah. in the earlier days um and so i like i learned quite a lot of closure just by watching and participating in those conversations Um and I had time for doing random open source stuff um at that point as well. So I I've made a few libraries that have ended up being you know moderately useful to some people. Uh n- none of them are like extremely popular. 
Um, I've made plenty that like nobody ever used because uh, they were terrible. Um, and you know, a few things that are just jokes mostly. Um, so <laughs> you belong in the show. So, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I had, uh, you know, three or four jobs in a row that were all, uh, closure and, uh, you know, writing generic kind of business code generally, you know, whatever fit the context of the company or organization I was working for. Um, I, the, I guess I, I started doing more like speaking and uh, maybe five years ago, like I tried out speaking at conferences and I enjoyed that a lot. I um, also took over the, the test check library. Um, I don't remember if it was a contrib library at the time. I think it, it, I think it already was. Um, and, uh, you know, Reed was interested in, in working on other things. Um, and I had already worked with him on it because I was using it at work and wanted to, uh, you know, wanted to add features. So I had, I had gotten really familiar with it. And it was the, the, like, of all the closure ecosystem libraries, it was probably the one that was, like, closest to the sort of thing that I enjoy working on. Because um, just all of the, like, algebraic or, you know, yeah, algebraic is a good word. Um, aspects to like how, how you build generators and that sort of thing. And it, I mean, it's written in a really like pure functional style hmm. in a way that maybe you can you can give us like a quick uh, intro about the library uh -huh. for the people who who don't know. Like, sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, ignoring history, uh, test checks a, a contrib library for doing uh, what's called property based testing. Um, and that's usually contrasted with example-based testing, uh, which is like, I think a, a term mostly used by people advocating property-based testing as a way to like summarize all of the other kind of automated tests people do. Um, and they say example-based testing because they want to emphasize that like you're writing a test that just tests one particular example of how your program might want run. You know, whatever test data you're using, um, it's, it's just one thing that might happen. Um, and you um, you often like have to explicitly think about what edge cases might be interesting to your program, and depending on what kind of programmer you are, you may or may not even bother testing edge cases. You might just write happy path tests. Um, but regardless, you like the onus is on you to kind of list all of the the edge cases that you want to test and um, think about you know actually think through those things. Um, and so pr property-based testing is about um, describing more abstractly what your program should do without giving specific examples. Um, like something that should be true regardless of what data or inputs are used. Um, and then if you can de sufficiently describe the, the data and inputs, um, then test check can just generate, you know, as many examples as you have time for and test all of them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of trade-offs, um, there and like in the best case, it's, uh, you know, something that will find all of the edge cases for you and find bugs you weren't even thinking about. Um, it has a, a feature called shrinking where if it, you know, finds some data that fails the test, then it will, um, ideally simplify it to the like most basic, uh, example of, um, something that fails in a way that, that will hopefully like make it obvious to you what the, what the bug is. You can go fix it. Um, 
yeah, I, I could go in a variety of directions from there. Like, what? <laughs> so, I want to see what what are you interested in? I guess. So, um, I think the usually the one of the only questions that we ask our guests is like Emacs or some other shit. Um, yeah, uh, yeah random, random direction there, dude. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> he said any directions. <laughs> that is yeah. only one way. I so like eight years ago or so, I was using Vim and uh, a standard QWERTY keyboard layout, and my my hands were hurting from typing too much, and so I just decided to try two things at once, um, which was I switched to Emacs. Uh, which sounds odd at first because, like, Emacs. Yeah, especially it, if your fingers are. <laughs> Emacs, you just have to, like, hit control and, like, all the mod keys all the time. So it sounds like it wouldn't yeah. help. Uh, the rationale was that, well, you don't have to use Emacs that way. And Emacs is so configurable that, like, if you find yourself um, typing a whole lot, then you can write an Elift code and figure out how to not type as much, even if you are reaching for modifier keys. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure in theory Vim is configurable as well, but you know, in, in practice, people don't like to do it. So, um, so I, I switched to Emacs. I also switched to the Dvorak keyboard layout, and uh, I mean, largely my hands have not been hurting since then. So it could be that either of those two things helped, or you know, by coincidence, something else helped. I just have no idea. You know, it wasn't very scientific, but you know, now now I use Emacs and uh, a funny keyboard layout. Um, and I, I mean, I do a lot of a lot of weird things with Emacs. Um, and like one of the, I think the thing that would make it hardest to quit, at least especially for personal stuff, is, is org mode. Like I didn't know about org mode when I switched, but um, it's exceptionally useful for in all sorts of ways. And I, I, I use it for my entire life basically, and uh, I use it quite a lot at work as well. Um, so, I, is it like I, Jira? <laughs> uh, that's one of the kinds of things you can do with it. I, 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 I guess I use it in that way, uh, and, and you know, lots of other stuff as well. I think you got the you got the direction of relationship wrong, Ray. I mean, it's it's not like Jira. Jira is like everything is like org mode. So it's, right, right, yeah, yeah. The direction points that way. It's not the other way around. Yeah, Jira does a few of the things that org mode can do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and everything yeah. is like Emacs or something. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so yeah. awesome. I think that's that's the exact answer that we wanted to hear. Now, now we can go into all sorts of directions. So coming back to the test check. Uh -huh. um, so before coming to Closure, as you said, you were or, or maybe you know uh, writing Closure code. You said um, there were plenty of uh, other languages that somebody suggested to you to learn. Uh, usually, if you see. Uh, generative testing that's I think that's coming from really static statically typed languages yeah like Haskell so how do you contrast that with with closure generative testing versus for example something like Haskell or Scala where there are types and everything um, well uh, one of the differences is uh, like I think it grew up in in the statically typed uh, language ecosystem partly because uh, when the when the computer knows your types already, um, it can uh, can create rudimentary rudimentary generators for you. Yeah. Um, so that that saves some work, and that's the exact same uh, strategy as with spec, where you like you're using spec, and so you've already described 
the the shape of your data, and so ideally spec can, can create the corresponding generators for you. Um, I, I certainly haven't done generative testing in statically typed property based testing in a statically typed language, um, so I can't I can't talk too intelligently about it. Um, my my sense is well. I was going to say something about how, like, I know when you're when you use spec um, with uh, with test check, you know, once things are complex enough, you find yourself needing to write your own generators anyhow to describe things that are probably you know either not captured by the native specs or like you've written some some predicates to test like consistency in some larger data structure, but spec can't just use your predicate to, to write a generator, and so you need to do something custom in order to generate stuff that, that matches the predicate. Um, my guess was that that sort of thing would apply in Haskell, et cetera, as well, that, you know, like you can generate things from, um, from your, your types, but, uh, you know, there's still inevitably be some more complex thing, so you'll, you'll be forced to to write some of your generators, um, but that, that might not be true. It might be that like, if you were really diligent about um, like correct by construction kind of approaches, that you would end up with just all the generators just work because it's impossible to generate something that's invalid. Uh, I have no idea how feasible that is in real life, but it sounds nice in theory. Well, my guess is that with, well, my guess is that with certain type languages, the you know the number of options that are possible are uh, kind of explored a little bit as well. Uh, what do you by options? You mean like kinds of things you might want to generate? Yeah, well, you know, if you if you if you've just got a spec, then to some you know, I mean, how 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 do you choose which which path of a of a of a, you know, when you when you've got a compiled language, you still have to follow a certain path, don't you, to get to a particular type. And if you're using generics or you know something like that, then in theory, there are lots and lots of implementations of this thing. Yes, but if you're using generics, you you like ideally, I think you're in a situation where um, like you can prove that it doesn't make a difference what the parameterized type is. Um, like for example, if uh, if you're testing a list reversal function, say, and you know you're you're in Java and the type is a list of you know some type parameter, um, you know a list of, of foos, uh, I mean not foos, you know something abstract where it could be any concrete thing when you actually call it. Yeah. Um, the the compiler shouldn't let you do anything that depends on you know, what kind of type is being used, unless you've specified that it, you know, it has to be something that implements this interface or something of that sort. But like for a list reversal um, function, you don't need to know anything about the objects that are in the list. Um, and so you, that should be evident by the type. And then like the, if, if your generator system is sophisticated enough that it can tell that, that it's impossible for you to do anything that depends on what kind of objects are in the list, then it you know, maybe doesn't need to spend any effort generating weird things to put in the list, like generate a bunch of numbers or something like that and be, be satisfied with that. That makes sense, yeah. So you, can actually, you could actually optimize it a little bit ahead of time. 
Yeah, whereas with closure, uh, like you don't have those kind of static guarantees, and you know, like ultimately you can pass anything to any function, and so there's like there's a lot more of, especially when you use spec. Like, I don't know if spec does this, but yeah, I mean, you know, spec has uh, this aspect where you describe maps that are open, and then can have arbitrary extra keys, mm-hmm. um, and like one approach to generating those things could be that, that the generator just adds lots of random garbage to every map just in case it happens to be something that your code looks at by accident. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it does that because, you know, I would slow everything down and it would uh, and it'd be lots of garbage on the screen that you'd have to sift through every once in a while. Um, so it's just one of the trade-offs it makes. But, I mean, on closure, like, that would be a valid way of testing is, you know, you can always just add random stuff everywhere yeah. so this is also uh, obviously useful on closure script as well right both uh, closure and closure script yeah the same. Um, there's uh, there's a caveat to that at least currently which is that uh, I don't think that we have uh, anything wired up for doing asynchronous testing in closure script um, mm. so it's uh, mostly just useful for testing, like business logic, pure functions, that sort of thing. Um, I haven't I haven't done a lot of that, but I you know I I made sure that it uh, you know the library at least compiles and closure script and all the test paths and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. So what's the async story then? Um, you mean like what would you do if you wanted to test async code with test check? Yeah, in general. Yeah. Um, there might be a like a variant, like a fork somewhere that does it. There's probably a branch in the test check repo, maybe. You know, I'd, I'd have to look into it. Um, I it, it partially depends on what um, what the test runners currently do with async code. I think closure test is set up to to do async in closure script, but, but I, I don't know that for sure. No, I just um, mean closure. I, just, I, I haven't tried this. Oh, in closure? Yeah. Um, oh, well, I mean, if you're on the JVM, then you can always take any kind of asynchronous code and just wrap it in threads that wait for something to be done. Um, so it's not really an issue. Like, it's an issue in closure scripts because the JavaScript one runtime won't let you block, like, run, run one thread that waits for another thread and then does something afterwards. Well, I mean, the... The, the the issue general issue with asynchrony is just the ordering ordering of things. So is that something which test check uh, kind of manages as well? Oh no, um, that's something that Reed really wanted to do because he was uh, the the model that he built test check on was an uh, Erlang implementation. Right. Yeah. Um, it might be called Erlang Quick Check. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think Quick Check. Yeah. But um, I think it, it or some associated library has a feature where it will manage all of the like background asynchronous message passing stuff so that it could test things happening in different orders and isolate race conditions. Um, and so Reed wanted to do that with Clojure. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if he wrote any code for that. I mean, that would be a lot of work because you'd have to like get into the guts of at least Clojure's um, multi-threading stuff like you know, I, I I assume all like atoms and agents and futures and like all of those things you would you would want to be able to orchestrate what's going on and I, it, that might be possible technically you might 
I mean, ideally, you'd, you'd be inside of the JVM manipulating all of the, all the JVM-level concurrency mechanisms, and that's, I'm sure, a lot harder and maybe not possible most of the time. And so, you, like, you'd be doing this compromise where it only applies to people that are using the closure-level concurrency thing. Um, so, yeah, yeah like, I, I don't know if it would end up working very well. Um, but I mean, that's, that's the story as far as like testing or race conditions. Um, and in practice, when I have code like that, that I'm trying to test with test check, what, um, you know, what, what I'll do is, you know, wrap it, wrap it in a synchronous code, like I described earlier. And, um, so now you have like a test that could fail randomly. It's not deterministic, which is not ideal for a test check. Um, but I, uh, you like if it fails often enough that you could say wrap it in code that will just run the test ten times and only pass if it passes all ten times. You know you can you can get some leverage out of that. That'll of course slow your test down even further. Um, if it doesn't fail that often, um, then you're in a situation where. Um, it will, if, if it ever fails, it will at least tell you that here's an example where your test can possibly fail. Um, and so now what you can do is take that example and just run your test on that example 10,000 times and just measure how often does it fail. You know, hopefully it fails often enough that I can uh, tell whether it's failing or passing at least within like an hour or a day or something like that, you know, it's not fun, but <laughs> yeah. you know, if you have a, a race condition that you care about, then you'll, you'll, you know, you'll be able to invest the time to track it down by that mechanism. And, and so test check is something that will, um, you know, at least find bugs like that, even if, even if it's difficult to, to really debug it and fix it. But that really depends on the amount of iterations that you run, right? Because the generative testing always seemed to be, at least to me, it's not an exact testing, but uh, you know we're going to try with the computational power and the time, mm -hmm. depending on how long it's going to take. Then hopefully it is going to find. It's like SETI, isn't it? Is that is that a correct assumption? Yeah. What did you say, Ray? I said it's like SETI. Yeah. Oh, oh, the like alien thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. It's it's the kind of like if if you really wanted to, and I'm sure some people do, you could have a machine that's just full-time dedicated to running your property-based tests just 24 hours a day. Um, I, there was just like one, uh, one thing I worked on where that was, that was useful. There's a, it was, it was open source actually, a, a library that's about test check called test chuck. Um, and the most interesting thing in it is a, a, a generator of strings that match regular expressions. Hmm. Um, so you give it a regular expression, it gives you a generator of matching strings, um, which means that the work it has to do is to parse and understand the, the regular expression. Um, and, you know, understanding a regular expression means, on the JVM, means that you have to, um, you know, understand all the details of JVM's regular expression class, which is, you know, very complicated. Um, and so, like, in writing this code, I also used test check to test that code to make sure that I was understanding the regular expression correctly. Um, so, like, one, 
what the first thing you have to do is given a string, like a string version of a regular expression, decide whether it's even valid. Like, can I parse this correctly? And you have a, a built-in reference implementation of that in the JVM. Like you can also, mm -hmm. uh, in closures, uh, I think it's called re-pattern. Yeah. The function, you give it a string and it'll return a regular it. expression, mm -hmm. or it'll throw an exception if it's not a valid regular expression. So I could test my parsing code like this. I could generate a random string that may or may not be a valid regular expression, check if my parser thinks it's a valid regular expression, and check if the re pattern function thinks it's a valid regular expression, then I just assert that those two things should should match. They should either both succeed or both throw exceptions. Um, and so that, like, that was a, a really good test of my parser, and um, that was something where I could run it for 24 hours, and you know, once I had gotten out the easy bug, it would take 24 hours to find the next bug. <laughs> Um, it's like Bitcoins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all mining it's, bugs. It's yeah, bug so it's mining. like a cryptocurrency for bugs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's what you should really put. You should put like you know people do these Easter eggs for JavaScript where they embed like a Bitcoin mining code. Right. That's what you, Easter that's, egg. That's what code and code. That's what you should do for test check. <laughs> yeah, you you've got a website and all of your users are secretly running your test. Exactly, and then when you when you get caught, oh, you're like, oh, yeah. that's an Easter egg. Or just mining bitcoins <laughs> on your behalf, you know. It's like, <laughs> yeah, if I if I ever succeeded in mining a bitcoin, I'd send it to you, obviously. <laughs> Good to and, know. And how does the 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 other side of the thing work? Because this is also something that is very fascinating to me. The what is called it? Like the narrowing, the oh, shrinking, examples, the right? shrinking. Yeah, yeah shrinking. Mm -hmm. Sorry, yeah, yeah. So how does that work? Because. Uh, I don't want to make any stupid explanations because I don't know how does it work. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is the, the biggest difference between um, test check and the original Haskell quick check. Um, I think I think Reed may have guessed how it worked in, in the Erlang version and used that, or it, it, it could have been completely original. I'm not even sure. Um, I, I, I think a lot of more modern quick check variants do something similar. But anyhow, mm -hmm. um, in the original Haskell, you, ha you would have to like supply a shrinking function. Like if you made a generator, you would need to give a function that like takes some example data and then returns a list of smaller pieces of data. Um, and so that's you know a lot of work, and you have to think creatively about it. And um, I, I mean, you can probably just decide not to do it, and then you don't get as much of the feature. Um, but anyhow, in, in test check, um, the shrinking is um, intended to be just automatic. Like all the built-in generators have shrinking functionality built in, like uh, go with them. And when you write your own generators, you're doing it using the provided combinators in test check. So like, there's the fmap combinator that says, you know, if I, I want to be able to generate, I want to generate this thing and then transform it using a function. Um, and the fmap itself has built-in shrinking. So if you, you write a custom generator that way, then you're still going to get shrinking for free because it can shrink the original thing and then pass the shrunken version of that thing to your function and get a smaller version of you know, the output for that function. Um, and uh, you know, that's, that's true for all of the combinators. So um, the, the intention is that you shouldn't ever have to think explicitly about shrinking, you know, it should just work. Um, in, in, in practice, 
you like it's useful to know something about how it works so that you can um, you know optimize things so that it shrinks faster. I, th I think that's that's usually the only issue is that um, you know shrinking can take a long time if you're generating very big things or like if you're generating big things and your test is really slow. Um, I guess this would happen to me where I was running these really uh, sophisticated tests that would have to generate like a megabyte of data and then the test itself would take several seconds for each instance. Mm -hmm. um, so it would run for a while, you know, maybe like run for, you know, if you want to test 100 trials, then it'll take a few minutes. But if it found a failure and now it has this several megabyte data structure and wants to shrink it, you know, that could take a day in the worst case. Um, and so, you know, when you're in that situation, you, it matters, you know, whether you have options for optimizing shrinking. Hmm. Um, I don't think I told you how it worked, really, did I? No. No. Um, <laughs> well, you give, a, you give us the outline of it. You give us the outline of it. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only, um, the, there's like only one generator that has like really original shrink, a shrinking algorithm built in, and that's the like positive integer generator. Um, I, I, that was probably a false thing I just said, but I don't know how it's false, so I'm going to stick by it for now. Um, so the, like the, it, it, there's this generator, really fundamental generator that just generates a number up to like the, I, I guess I should say, I should back up, there's, uh, when you're running tests, there's something called a size parameter. Um, so the, the, this is because it wants to start with small instances of data and, you know, so that you can fail quickly. If it doesn't even work for the small things, then you know, it'll fail right away and it'll be small and it won't have to shrink very much. So it starts out small and then tests on larger and larger things. Um, and the way this actually works is that it just has this parameter that starts at zero and goes up to 199. If you run 200 tests, it'll go all the way up to 199 one by one. And then if you run more tests than that, it goes back to zero and just cycles around. Uh, that's, that's how it works by default. Um, and, so there's this integer generator that just generates a, a, a number like uniformly from zero up to the current size. So it'll generate small numbers at first, and once you get up to like 199, it's generating integers all the way up to 199, um, which isn't very big. Um, but regardless, um, there's the way that that shrinks is, um, I might even not be able to describe it accurately. It, it'll, um, I probably like try zero first. Like, if it can shrink the, the number to zero um, and the test still fails, then, you know, it saves a lot of effort. Um, yeah. if, if that doesn't work, it'll probably try dividing it by two um, so that, uh, you know, I, in, the, in the best case, if you have a test where it, like, fails above some amount, then it should get there quickly, you know, like in using a binary search. Um, and I think that's what it ends up being, is, is something like a binary search. So divide by two, and if that doesn't work, then try halfway in between those. Um, it might end up being something, you know, slightly different algorithm, but it you know, certainly smells like binary search. Um, but so then you have um, a lot of other, like a lot of the built-in generators are, are created using the combinators that are available to users. Um, the... Uh, like uh, there's like collection generators. Um, yeah. So a collection, I guess, also shrinks kind of in a custom way. So if you generate, say, a vector of things, 
Um, if the if it's not a particular if it's not intended to be a particular size, then it can shrink in a couple ways. It could shrink the individual items in the vector, or it could yep. shrink by just removing items and giving you a shorter vector. Um, and so it interleaves those strategies. Uh, you know, it might try with an empty vector first, um, and then you know try cutting the vector in half. And if it can't remove things at all, then it'll just start shrinking individual elements. Um, it's amazing how much I don't know about this, even though I've, I've worked so much. <laughs> um, I think you're doing well. <laughs> uh, so I mean, FMAP I described earlier, like it's just a pure function that, uh, that you're, you're mapping the, the generated value, and so it can shrink the, the prior value, both, both the input to the function, and then call your function again. Yeah. Um, there's generators like tuple, where you want to, like you supply several generators and you're going to, you want to generate a, a vector that has an element that, you know, one element from each generator. Mm. Um, and so that shrinks by just, you know, individually shrinking the, the generated item. It can't shrink by removing them because it's, you know, static length. Um, but, uh, that's, that's, I, like each, each of the combinators or built-in things sort of has its own natural way of shrinking. Mm. Um, and this can be fairly uh, complex operation for arbitrarily deep structured or data structures in closure, right? If there is a vector of a map of vector or something like that, then uh, especially because it, it's not only at the top level form, it, it needs to shrink the individual vectors inside a map, you know, uh, value, yeah, something like that. Yeah, I, so I mean, it's it's. Uh... It's sort, of, you, it's sort of defined recursively. So if you have some sort of deep structure like that, like you can look at what's the top-level thing, what's the, the collection, um, and so you know we'll try removing elements at the top level, and we'll try shrinking elements at the top level. And then so uh, if you're shrinking one of the elements, and that element's a map with a whole bunch of stuff in it, then you, you have to think about how to map shrink, um, that yeah. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, yeah, there's uh, there's another generator called such that that will um, filter generated items on a on a predicate, uh, for example. Um, so you give it a generator and then some predicate, and it'll give you a, a new generator that only generates things from the other generator that match the predicate. And so that that has a natural shrinking definition too, which is you shrink the original thing, um, but only try things if they match the predicate. Um, hmm. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, in, in a lot of cases, I think you can kind of figure out like what's the natural thing to do here without having to actually look at the code. Yeah. And, and how does the, uh, because uh, we have spec now and then in alpha, uh, but we, we, <laughs> we had spec for know, a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. And so how does that help uh, in terms of this one? Because obviously some of, some of the um, generator guessing can happen by just reading the specs and then using specs as the as the input, right? Yeah, um, that's certainly the intention. I haven't. I don't think I've used this. I, I don't think I've used spec uh, with test check myself very much. Uh, certainly never at work. Um, and I like I understand how they're how they're wired together. My uh, my sense is that. Uh, like if you're using it for serious stuff, then you're you're gonna have to be familiar with how test check works. Like you can't you can't just rely on Spectre in your tests. 
because once you have complex enough stuff, you need to write custom generators. Um, there's, there's, you know, a, a few different um, gotchas in how how they're connected, um, and I mean, the test check in general has uh, a variety of little, um, like, uh, things that are kind of difficult to use about it. I would say. Um, and, and which is something I've thought about a lot and, you know, tried to make it easier to use when it's obvious how to. Um, but that was, that's like one of the most difficult things for me in maintaining it was, um, you know, watching people use it and seeing what's difficult and trying to think about something that would make it easier without like ruining other things and making it more complicated to understand. Um, and, you know, most of the time I, I just don't know what to do. Um, cause yeah. it, I mean, it's, weird kind of constraint to uh, to work under where you're writing code for thousands of people that you never talk to and they never tell you they're using it and you want to like not break stuff when you change things. Um, and I, I don't think I'm answering the question. You asked how test check and, <laughs> and spec relate to each other. It's okay. I mean, you, you don't need to answer the questions at all. It's 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 yeah. reasonable <laughs> to go in any direction you like. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, so it it, it has a uh, spec like for all of the different kinds of built-in specs that you can use. It will have a definition for how to generate something from that. So, like, if yeah. you if you use a call of generator or spec to describe a collection of some other you know things that match some other spec, then it's going to use, um, you know, one of the generators for generating a collection. So there's a lot of, like, obvious pairing between the specs and the generators. Um, there's a few weird edge cases. Uh, and then it also has code for instrumenting functions. Um, yeah. And and they made this choice that surprised a lot of people where the, the default I, I guess this doesn't have to do with test check. I was thinking about like the way they only test the input, not the output in instrumentation. Um, that's not actually about generators. I, I guess test check, that's a different entry point where you give it a function and say, test this thing. Um, and it will generate the inputs and call your function. And then sh like, I'm going to make sure it doesn't throw an exception and then also test the um, the type of the like the outputs need to match the spec, and I, yeah. I think and with spec you can also test like add a uh, I forget what they call it but it's like a validation function that will take the input and the output and oh, yeah. assert yeah. something about them, um, and I, I assume that's also getting checked when you when you do the the property based testing, um, so it not only like writes the generators in effect it writes the tests for you. Um, and like one of the the difficult to use aspects is that uh, like that the, the entry point for running those tests isn't wired up to any of the normal like closure test stuff, and so you have to at least last time I looked, you had to write some you know minor amount of custom code to make a like in your test you run this other thing and mm. um, you make an assertion about it and, and like I don't I don't know where you see shrunken values when your tests fail and that sort of thing. Like, well, like one of the difficulties um, in, in working on testing libraries is that there's this whole ecosystem of testing tools 
And like, they all need to know about each other, sort of. Uh, like, if you want it to be really ergonomic, then like I, I talked to Colin about um, what, what, what's this thing in IntelliJ? Cursive. Um, like, and he wanted Never to be able to like show little things about uh, what values were getting generated in the in the test check test. And so I, you know, I had to think about like what does test check need to expose to make that possible. Um, and then there's like other ways people run their tests. And there's you know like there's test runners and there's IDEs and and uh, it, you know when it's just this like flat ecosystem of lots of different tools playing lots of different roles, all trying to interoperate. Uh, I think it gets really difficult to to make it a good user experience. Yeah. So what is the future for test check? Uh, what what are what what are the things that are that are planned or what, what do you want to mm -hmm. uh, focus on or what do you want people to contribute for, uh, contribute to? Right. Uh, so let's see. I've, I, I, like I described some of the, the difficulties in maintaining it. I, uh, one of the things I did after I took over was I um, filled in a lot of generators that felt like they were missing to me, uh, like things that I would need frequently. And I did this whenever I thought it was obvious what good implementation would be. Like I added um, uh, like generators for larger integers and for collections that have um, you know distinct elements, which would which was a hard thing to do in user land, um, and UUIDs and a bunch of other random things. And that was all in the zero nine zero release, which was I think three years ago now. Yeah. Um, and then I started working on like all of the stuff that was not easy enough to do in that release. And so I was just, like, I had all these hard things. Um, and so, I mean, between that and not wanting to devote too much time to it, um, the, you know, all those features have sort of dragged out and I, I made some alpha releases a few times along the way. Um, but uh, it was only in the last month or so that I decided I wanted to finally like try to put together a, a proper um, release out of those three years worth of, of sort of hodgepodge efforts. Uh, partly because there's at least there's one or two things that are fairly useful to spec, and I like spec can't be changed to use those things until it's really released. Um, so there's like this release dependency there and, um, you know, there's also like things that would just make the user experience better. So I like, I really wanted to get that released. Um, and that requires like abandoning some of the things I wanted to do that are just too hard. Um, but last month I got it in what I think is a good enough state to release. Um, so I, I made an RC release, um, and have no, like no other things I'm planning on changing. Um, so I'm just letting that bake. Uh, one one person told me he was using it, uh, and I haven't heard anything <laughs> bad from him or anybody else. <laughs> so, so I assume uh, I assume nothing else will come up, and then in, you know in a few weeks I'll 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 cut a, an actual release. Yeah. Um, after that, I'll pr I I think I'm I'll probably be more passive because you know at this point there's only the really really hard stuff left. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> You've got to go to your hammock at this point. 
I talked to Stu Holloway about this a little bit, and one of his comments was that, you know, the best thing you can do is just leave it the way it is. Like, it works, and, you know, like, adding a bunch of features is, uh, might end up breaking stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he's really focused on stability. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, you can see that in the language as well. So, uh, in a sense, people haven't been clamoring to have stuff done. There's just all these, like, vague um, things that that are, you know, not ideal about it, but don't have obvious solutions. Um, so anyhow, I, I, I don't think I'm going to be like actively working on another release after that. Um, mm -hmm. So I like I'm happy to talk to anybody that, that wants to work on that. And uh, like I have a, a long list of things I wanted to, like problems I um, saw and ideas I had. Like I've really wanted to to like reboot some of the namespaces, like yeah. the generators namespace or the you know the quick check namespace or the uh, uh, the def spec stuff. Yeah, it, it, there's one of the most difficult things about making it easier to use is you need to also like the stuff that was hard to use needs to stay there and still work and be documented and that sort of thing. And so there's this constant problem of how do I have both of these things and eventually you just end up making it more confusing because you've got all these versions of things that people have to understand and choose between. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I have a long, a long list of like fantasy ideas that you know, I largely didn't, uh, didn't do, but you know, they're still there and I think I still understand them and can explain them. That sort of thing. Yeah. But I think it's a it's a really really great bedrock for this kind of testing and and like you say a lot of things that you maybe people want to do on top of it they can do on top of it they don't have you know the library itself doesn't have to have the answer to all of these possibilities does it? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's there is a lot of stuff you can do in user land, and that that was part of why I created the the, the test chuck library was like I saw things that I could make more ergonomic by writing these helper functions, hmm. um, but it would be harder to decide to put them into test check. You know, I, like I created that library before I was maintaining test check, but even afterwards, hmm. like I wasn't really tempted to just take all of the stuff in it and hmm. and dump it into test check. Um, Cause I mean, there's a different standard for stuff you put there. Um, yeah. It has to fit with everything else. It has to be something you believe is useful for everybody, or at least something that everybody should know about and have to decide whether or not to use. Whereas sticking it in a third-party library, you know, there's a lot lower bar. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, you know, I think that's that's one way to solve the problem. But it's, you know, it's also not fun for newcomers to come in and be told, well, you know, we use this library for this thing, and then there's this other library you should pull in that does, you know, this other thing, and they probably work together well. But, um, yeah, I. It's the closure way, though. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, it is. <laughs> but I, yeah, I break it and they will hard. come. Yeah. Hmm. I, 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 part of this I think is that I've like I've always worked near people who have a lot of Rails experience, and they're used to this like really cohesive thing where most anything you might want to do is something where like you can Google and here's this one liner. Right. And you don't understand yeah. what it's doing, but you type it and it works and you're happy and you keep going. <laughs> and like yeah. the closure ecosystem is not that way. Um, and so I, I just like, 
that's that's the ideal that I want because I like I want to make those people happy too. Um, and yeah, it's yeah, it's probably just not possible. I think it doesn't. Just before we go on, there doesn't a lot of it. I was just going to say, doesn't a lot of this kind of stuff depend upon, you know, essentially an opinionated perspective? Because I think, you know, the main thing to me about Ruby on Rails is that DHH had a way of doing things. He's a lead, he, he had a, a strong opinion. He's a strong leader of that framework. Um, and a lot of these tools, like Test Check, maybe I'm missing it, but it seems less opinionated. It's more um, it's more of a, a toolkit rather than a, a directed solution to a particular kind of like generic problem like web applications. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's true in a way. I mean, it has its own kind of opinion, but sure. um, like one of the things about Rails is it's not a programming language. You know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. restricted to a, uh, a very particular kind of application. Hmm. Um, and when you use it for other random things, it starts getting more awkward. Um, but you know, when you're trying to build the thing that Rails was designed for, it, you know, it's pretty easy to do. Hmm. Um, and Clojure was never, I mean, it's just, it's a generic language, so sure. you're supposed to be able to use it for anything. And there, there is no like community, um, primary thing that we're all building. Um, so all of these libraries are, you know, either built with like whatever random thing the maintainer happens to be working on in mind or else nothing in mind They're you know, they're supposed to work for everything. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, I think a lot less cohesion in terms of what application you're targeting and the style of thing you use. That's why the way, what I see from people, you know, in the consulting world, like Matosin and Juxt and people like that is that they tend to have like a preferred pack of libraries and then a preferred bit of glue code that they write. So I think that's the way people tend to do things, you know, is that they they don't have like one overarching framework, but yeah. I think Cognitech did pedestal, didn't they? They that was that was the yeah. original idea of a kind of replacement for uh for Rails. But uh but you know, yeah. it's a lot of work to do the full stack, you know, and um I don't think it fits the culture very well, you know. So as far yeah. as I know, I know I, it's mostly just like backend stuff and you know, a better version of Ring basically with async functions. So, you know, good stuff, but you know, it's it's very much a sort of slice of the of that particular domain rather than the whole thing. Yeah. I I haven't used it uh, or like done the sort of thing that it would benefit from. And so I'm I'm fairly distant from it. The vague like observer impression I got was that it perhaps could have been a lot more popular if they hadn't like gotten unlucky and designed and released it like right before react became yep. a major thing. Yeah. Um, so the, the whole like web development ecosystem kind of shifted out from under, I mean, it was a uh, ohm came out around the same time, yeah. I think. Yeah. I think the front end story in pedestal was fairly complicated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just unlucky timing. Like I, yeah. if they, if they had done it a couple of years later, and it would you know would fit a lot better with those things, and, you know maybe it would have been popular. I'm not sure. Yeah. So there are two two other things that that I wanted to just uh, ask you, like, what is going to happen with your library seventy <laughs> one? I think I have a uh, 
you made a horror class? I don't know if there is a My, my Gmail yeah. inbox is my to do list, or is one subset of my to do list. Stuff that hasn't made it into org mode. And oh yeah, there are there are two pull requests and three issues pending. So what what do you have yeah, to say about I, it? Maybe maybe first you know explain to people what seventy one is, and then that's that's easier. Seventy uh, <laughs> one is a, a library that provides the number seventy one. Um, <laughs> enclosure. I don't remember what the like if there's anything enclosure. in particular. I'm yeah mm, yeah. I think I wanted to just like make fun of libraries in general when I made it. This is like the next level. I mean, Leftpad actually has some f- like <laughs> functionality in it. Yeah. This is the next level of shit. I think we should have like one library for every natural number. And then, <laughs> you know, people complain about there are not enough libraries in closure. Like we have infinite amount of libraries, minus one. Yeah. And then go on. <laughs> and yeah. then 71 well, it is. I might stress the uh, like closures or maven. Uh, ecosystem yeah. to try to deploy an infinite number I mean, of libraries. I, I really want to use it, but you know it, the the major version is still zero, so I'm I'm a bit concerned about the stability of the library. That's, but, you know, that's just the closure style, isn't it? You just all have that's true. Yeah, the, the zero dot doesn't contain any information. <laughs> exactly, zero dot one dot five. Well, you know, <laughs> that seems to be okay. Yeah, I, I I'd be more in favor of just using like at work we use integers, which. Uh, I guess is easier since you don't you're not trying to communicate to somebody what features are supported. But I, wasn't that one of Richie's ideas in his talk about backwards compatibility was just use integers for versions. I haven't seen anybody yeah, yeah. doing that. I think I think some people started doing it because I see this. Uh, uh, whenever I try to do pip install something, I get some weird number that doesn't make any sense to me anymore on Python ecosystem. So you're saying Python people are doing it? Yeah, like. If you do, I don't know, pip install something, and then suddenly mm-hmm. it'll, if you put in something in my, you know, virtual environment, I'll like, okay, what is what does this number mean? I have no idea. But I think they are they are also catching up to the semantic thing a bit. But there are people who who are using dates for releases, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah, I think it's it's a complicated thing. If you're committed to the backwards compatibility thing, it feels like that could work. Um, yeah, yeah, but. Yeah, I, I mean, I I just haven't really been maintaining anything that's significant enough that I needed to do anything beyond just incremental number for the version. Yeah. So that but, I, but seventy-one seems like a solid library, you know. Yeah, uh, for, for me, I think you know. That, uh, I think I, I might need to take a look at the problem I've got with it is that um, it just doesn't have um, depth.eden support. So I think it's. Uh, it doesn't. I, no, I think there's that's one of the pull requests, right? Yeah, number <laughs> number nineteen. Is, uh, or maybe it's just the issue. No, it's just an issue. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that's something. That's something that well, we I can guess, improve. Uh, that's an easy I one guess. to. Some some, uh, some some loser opened that one. Oh, it was you. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I one thing I haven't figured out is the whole like library deploy or release lifecycle without Linegan. Um. With Depsiden. Yeah. No, you so, just you uh, just just to put put the last commit is the shah, then you're all done basically. You know, just we well, you still have to like upload it to you gotta make a jar and upload it to No you don't. Jars. No, you don't, no, no. Oh if you make if you okay, make I'm that, sorry, that, you're that, saying if you, you make a yeah, yeah, yeah. If you make if you, your commit is a deploy. So you make a depth.eden file and then I can depend on it and we're all good. 
Is I, is that what a lot of people are doing? They're not even going to full jars. Exactly. Yeah. I I don't know, man. Then you're like you need <laughs> GitHub to be it's there. That's cheating. I know. <laughs> I think they've got. A, I think honestly, they've got a bigger CDN than uh, Claw Jars have. So. Right, and you know, it's just the single point of failure thing. Um, I there's got to be other downsides to that. I I haven't thought about it too much, but uh, I mean, like you can't. The Linegan people can't use it at all. Is at least a short term downside. Uh, I think let's get to some other less serious libraries than the final one. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, can you uh, maybe give a quick idea about uh, what is CoinDB? Is it is it like uh, competing with Redis? Um, <laughs> maybe it's MongoDB. I, it's no, we are only talking in terms of I, yeah. What is this MongoDB? I, I think it's a uh, kind of a trailblazer. I don't I don't know that it has any competitors at the moment. <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> it's too far ahead. Yeah, uh, fair enough. It's so advanced, nobody's using it as far as I know. <laughs> you need you need quantum computers. Yeah, that's what the the QU is supposed to mean, I think. Ah, quantum. That makes sense. Right. Now everything makes sense to me now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, maybe enlighten us a bit. Like, what is CoinDB doing? And then, uh, sure. What are the what what can I use it for? Uh, CoinDB is about both a coin and a database. Um, so. Quine meaning it's a program you can run and it just prints itself out. Uh, so it's a bash program in this case, so it prints a bunch of bash code. Ooh. Um, and it's a database because the, the auxiliary functionality beyond printing its own source code is it's a key value store. Um, and so it, it does both of those things by using the two different output streams uh, on Unix. So the the source code goes to standard out, I think, and then all of the like database-based uh, functionality to goes to standard error. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so, like, so if you run it with no arguments, it just prints its own source code. And then there's a few different commands um, that you can run. Like, there's one for reading a reading the value associated with the key. So, you know, you call CoinDB, and the first argument is get, and then the second argument is the key. Um, then it'll it'll print its own source code, of course, to standard out. And then it'll also print the value that you stored under that key to standard error. Um, and then you can also set uh, the key to a value. And um, when you're doing writes, then it does something special, which is that it's not quite printing its own source code. It's printing a variant of its own source code that now has the the data you wrote um, inside of it. So wow. you have to. If, if you want to keep your data, you have to be careful to redirect standard out to somewhere useful. Um, and you can't, I mean, I think a normal Unix bash situation, you can't just redirect it to the, um, the file that you're executing because it'll, yeah. it'll like truncate that file before it even tries to execute it or something of that sort. So you have to mm -hmm. redirect it to a different file and then move it or just keep both of them if that's what you want to do. But you're you're getting a copy of the database that has your modification in it, basically. That, that is so beautiful, it's, yeah. It's kind yeah, of a mini datomic like as well. Datomic almost. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's a mini datomic. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, can, uh, you can keep as many versions as you want. You know, it's great for exactly. backups and stuff like that. <laughs> It's like next version, like uh, <laughs> yeah. datomic.future. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, it's. I mean, of course, there's like quadratic slowdown as you add more and more keys. Oh, that's the Q for the the what? The the Q Q U is for quadratic. Quad slowdown. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think it pro probably makes it more secure as well. You know. It's less 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 uh, less less uh, accessible to rainbow attacks, yeah. Uh, right. uh, rainbow attacks are about passwords, and there's no passwords or any security involved here. Oh, well, well, that's so where I want to store my passwords it. in the future. Come on. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> it's uh, a key value store. Username, password. <laughs> Well, what are you talking about? Uh, I, said, I, I don't understand why this is less acceptable to rainbow attacks. I think that that would just depend on your like password hashing implementation, right? It's independent. Oh, I thought like the the running of it after you store a certain number of uh, a certain number of passwords. Oh, making slow it slower. Down. You mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. So the fact that it would take a very long time to pull yeah. a password out of the database, yeah, um, would definitely make some kind of attack slower. Yes, yeah. that's true. I mean, quadratically slower. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You, <laughs> that, that is the idea. Is it, is it oh. really quadratic? Maybe it's just linear. Like the runtime oh. is. Okay, now I'm disappointed. Uh, Damn it. Yeah. I mean, you, you we, think we, it we, we need the big O's on this one. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, exactly. There, there's something in the readme about this. So, so I was able to insert 100 key value pairs into an empty database in a mere 10 seconds. And the runtime oh. of each operation is probably. In login, hmm. I think they, they should. They, I think they should be one of the themes of software development, right? I remember when I was, uh, I think, in Italy or something. There is something called slow food movement. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah. you know, like all these rust people saying, "Oh, my shit is so fast," and all that, and then we go to the other side, like slow software. Yeah, you know, that is our thing. Yeah, that, that, like over the time it goes slower and slower and slower. So you can relax and then you yeah. know, have a tea or whatever and then <laughs> insert into something. Yeah. And then you just go and have a cup of tea. And then by the time you're back, the insert is finished. Yeah, it, yeah, it encourages people to slow down and uh, exactly. do other Be things. Be more mindful. Yeah, chill out. Yeah. Yeah. Manana. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's no. right. We'll have, your, we'll have your sense. password for you, Manana. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is going to be fucking amazing if we have test check testing QuineDB <laughs> yeah. that is getting slower and slower for every, and then that could be awesome. Yeah, like you know, like yeah. shrinking is going to be really, really useful there. I, yeah, I arbitrarily know, I, slow. Yeah, yeah. I did notice that you had test check on seventy one, so that's pretty impressive. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I might have used it for QuineDB to like make sure it worked. <laughs> mm. I have. <laughs> I have some like, unit tests in Ruby just because I wanted to write them really fast. And that was like the fastest thing I could like think of that needed to uh, run a bunch of shell programs or yeah. you know, shell out to a bunch of stuff. But uh, maybe I need to check. I don't know. But yeah, I know. One of the things that, one of the things I uh, off topic really a little bit. One of the things I noticed uh, was that you say the QuineDB requires Bash four. And um, I just happened to notice today that uh, that Mac, the Mac uses Bash version three. Yeah, going to Zshell. And and, it, and, and it, well, I know. And you know why that is? Uh, I, I do not. It's because it's the, the Bash BSD license. Bash version four went to GPL v three. Yeah. Oh so, no. Yeah. So like you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> Apple, so it might like, never happen. No fucking way. You know, we're not having that. <laughs> wow. So uh, I mean, you, can, you, can, you can install it via brew. So I think you should, you know, you should definitely uh, be friendly to the MacOS guys and you know help them out with a the brew install there. But you know, provide the command. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, in the, in the next version, macOS will switch to Z shell, right, or Z shell, whatever you want to call it. Mm. In the next version, they're going to switch to Z shell as the default one. That would be. That, I Catalina think that would be nice, but yeah. so maybe you need to port it to. Yeah, yeah, it's already announced. So they are yeah. going to make uh, Z shell as the default uh, shell. Right, right, in, right. Uh, in Catalina or something. Okay. The next version. That might be. Uh, I, I mean, I've I've resisted using alternate shells because I feel like the. Uh, I don't like having to know several kinds of fundamental tools. Like no, I don't no, want to use more than one kind of text editor, and I don't want to use more than one kind of shell. And I feel like you always have to know Bash. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if Apple is switching to the shell, maybe uh, maybe it'll become more ubiquitous. And, yeah, and, but uh, it's a bullshit reason, though. It's just because of this licensing crap, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, no matter what the reason is, though, it might. Uh, I, I don't know if it's is it available in modern Linux. Operating systems, or do you have to install it? Z shell. Z shell. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, you just type ZSH, right? Or Z shell. Yeah. 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 ZSH. Yeah. Not Z. Not Z. Nope. Come on. <laughs> Command ZSH not, not found, but can be installed with sudo apt install ZSH. Yeah, ZSH. Oof, yeah. Oof. Yeah. So okay, it's not there. Not there. Uh, maybe some. Well, I think, I think, I think Debian 20. 27 will probably catch up and then have this this one in the stable. Well, what we're talking right, about yeah. now is like the, the year of the Z shell desktop. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, year year of Z shell on the desktop. Uh, <laughs> and there's also Windows is trying to to get all the Linux developers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so that's another another factor. Yeah. Uh, I don't. It, you have to get them to switch to Z. I don't know. I assume they have Bash. I don't. I don't know what else they'd be doing. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so, um, so, but what is what is uh, what are the other languages that you're looking at? What is on your radar now, apart from Clojure? Uh, I'm. I mean, I, I I used to to care a lot about languages. Um, like I was I was advocating Clojure a lot, maybe six or seven years ago. Um, but I'm like my personality is just really wishy-washy, and, and I don't <laughs> like to commit to anything. Um, and so as soon as I saw anybody having trouble with closure, uh, you know, I was just sort of back down and like I don't know what anybody should do ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I mean, lately I've been uh, more like professionally, I've been more interested in uh, like working on. Uh, just whatever um, the like business people think is important, and trying not to have like strong opinions about languages unless that really is the core of. So of you're going the to be problem. a COBOL developer. Yeah, that's, that's probably what's going <laughs> to happen. You're going to um, be a SAP developer, aren't you? Yeah. A SAP developer is that what you said? Uh, no, SAP. SAP. Oh, SAP. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember what that is. It's an it's, old thing. Well, it's like it's like an old and olden days version of Salesforce, you know. It's from what? 
like an, an older version of Salesforce? An old school type of thing that Salesforce is now. You know, it's like an accounting resource mm. management software. Everything. Yeah. Salesforce like has a lot, a lot of a lot of factories and uh, you know, kind of like small businesses run on SAP. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Small. Yeah. <laughs> the entire Germany. Them as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. BMW <laughs> runs on SAP, yeah. Okay, mm. it's just a language, or is it like a whole? No, it's a, like a whole. Yeah, it's like a whole ecosystem. So it's it, it's like a, yeah, it's like a huge amount of software, including a database and all other nonsense that comes with it, and then it yeah. has different modules to to manage your HR, payroll, logistics, mm -hmm. insurance, this and that, yeah. invoicing. Practically, the, the ERP system, enterprise yeah. resource planning. It's thing. basically business uh, software. But, but let's not yeah. talk about it. You know, it's, it's. Uh, I mean, it's not as complicated as seventy one, but still. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, if you if you are really gonna like care about what the business think, then you're gonna have to become a SAP programmer or something similar. You know. Yeah. Um, ABAP. Yeah. The ABAP. ABAP. They're, they're yeah. all ABAP. They're all you know, app ABAP, apping yeah. things. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So what know, what do what do your happy. business care about? Gary? Yeah. So that's what what'd you say? What does your business care about? What kind of things oh. do they do they care about? Well, they want to make money. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, shocker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. I, so I mean, there's a lot of I, I work at a trading firm uh, called oh, BRW, okay. and um, there's you know there's a lot of variety of people doing different things with different languages. Um, I think. Uh, there's a lot of people that like Java in different ways. Um, you know, anybody close to like data science kind of applications probably using some kind of mm -hmm. Python, yeah, mm -hmm. something similar. Um, so uh, I mean, there's certainly people that use C++ because it's fast. Uh, I haven't done that yet. Uh, I mm -hmm. think that would be fun. Um, I, at least you're wrong like about that for but, good you know, reason. Okay. You know, <laughs> it's not fun. <laughs> It's it's rust. <laughs> fun it's in a statistic sort of way. It's definitely not fun. I mean, yeah, well, yeah, get, get your kicks, I suppose. <laughs> I like I like knowing how things work, and so like using a lower level language will force you to, yeah. you know, at least know more about things well, you, like pro like processor details and that sort of. I thing. think you'll definitely know how things don't work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think C is still quite nice. You know. Um, if you, you know, Do you think there is a, a like a particular subset of C plus plus that is nicer than C? Rust. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's, yeah, that's what Rust. people keep shouting on the internet. These I think days. Rust yeah. is a nicer version of C. It's got yeah, it's got more exceptions and yeah, it's a bit. It's it's got it's more static it's got typing. typing. That's the main thing. Yeah. Whereas with C, you don't have that, which is uh, can be very nice. It makes things very flexible. But yeah. If you if you use C in a particular way, will you get enough? Static type checking, or can you not no. even opt into that? No, there's nothing. So, it's no. got nothing. Yeah, well, it's got nope. things like you know integer, and uh, it's got it's got enum, you know, and union, <laughs> and, and, and a pointer somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Right, you yeah. can make a bunch of structs and get type checking on that. Uh, no, not really. No, no. Really? Yeah. No, because usually point a you you don't pass the struct by value, right? You just give a pointer once you have a pointer. Yeah. You just, you just start much. filling it. Yeah. So it's just a bunch of bytes and then pointing to somewhere, and it could be anything. So. Yeah. That's a fun story. It's, 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 you, anyway, you think closure's loose, you typed. Forget it, you know. 
<laughs> You're just pointing to yeah. some memory addresses that loosely might follow some some bullshit that you say, you know. But okay, so if you have a function that takes a pointer to some struct, and and at the call site, it's uh, you know what you have is declared to be a pointer to something else. Won't that be yeah. a compile error? Yeah, there'll be a compiler error. Like I know you can write code that will get around yeah. it. You yeah, know, yeah, the yeah, same yeah. way you can like typecast in Java. But I like what I want to believe is that if you are disciplined and you know avoid doing the, the trapdoor stuff then you'll get static type checking. Like. For, 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 for level one, yeah. For level, for, for the very, very surface level, yeah. But it's almost impossible to stay at that level in C. I know a lot of the you know, like more OS-oriented like libraries and functions are like really insane to work with. Like having to, you have to check Erno everywhere. Oh, yeah. But that's like, like Go, I think, is like that, you know? Yeah. But the, the main thing, I mean, there, there, there's something worse about it too, I think, where you have to like save its value before you do anything in case it gets overwritten and then restore it, or I don't know. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun. But th but that's what if that's what if it is making money for for business, why not? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it might take you 15 years to write the thing that you're making money for, but you know, keep the right. faith. <laughs> hey, you know. Linus made Git in I don't know what a weekend or something. Is that what we say now? <laughs> that's what that's what you just said. So I'll buy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So he he made it in just uh, one weekend, and and uh, I see a lot of noise on the on the on, on Twitter these days, like 10x programmer or something. So if you're a 10x programmer, then you know it's like yeah, you, in two days you can create Git. You can do anything in C in two days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. You're probably right. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, like another direction for the language question is it's something I would be interested in seeing would be uh, a like statically typed closure-esque language. Um, it, like the main difference from other statically typed functional languages would be more of an emphasis on generic data. I think that's one of the, the more interesting things about closure. Um, but I've never like gravitated toward dynamically typed languages in general. Like I like having a computer tell me that something possible or impossible. Um, you know, I could, I could believe that maybe you just can't put your program into that paradigm and it's always going to be costly or something like that. But, you know, I still want to try. Um, and so the, like one thing I think about a whole lot is like a language or a VM that's based around JSON. So it has like a totally closed set of possible types. Like you can only have a map or a list or strings or numbers or booleans, and that's it. And you just have to assemble everything from that. Um, and then like, you could have static types around that and uh, you know, just lots of other ideas that probably don't actually work if you, if you try them. But, um, you know, something like a little bit like JQ, but like a full-fledged programming language. Yeah. Um, but is this the is this the main thing that that is kind of pulling you away from closure or uh, getting? No, that's getting just a random fantasy. Yeah. Um, no, I the I mean, using closure less is just that uh, you know there's a lot of, a lot of people doing other things with other languages, and I'm right course, now more yeah, I'm just more interested sure. in 
what the work is accomplishing than I am and what language is being used. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Cool. But what would be the, what, what, what are the main features in closure that you would say that, uh, that, that were very valuable so far, of course, given the and a lack of static typing, obviously that is one thing that, uh, that's probably other languages, different paradigms have, but what would be the pros of closure or in your experience so far? Um, well, like just the general question of what I yeah, think is yeah. good about closure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I think there's this, uh, like I think of closure as being the combination of this pure functional core and then a lot of like really messy stuff for gluing it together and interoperating and doing things. Mm. Um, and so I think there's a lot of value in you know, trying to write pure functional code uh, for your business logic as much as you can. Yeah. Um, especially for things like debugging, like being able to, like if you, you find out, uh, this happened to me like a week ago, you find out something in production is not doing what somebody expects. And um, you somehow um, get, you know, via logging or something like that, you, you print out the, the argument to the, the largest pure section of the code that's not behaving as expected. Um, and then you can just paste that into a REPL and run it on you know, your version of the code and hopefully reproduce the bug and just iterate on that. Hmm. Um, and so I think that's fairly useful. That, that part would presumably apply to a statically typed functional language as well. Um, yeah. So the... Uh, I... I don't know. I'm like I said. I'm a really wishy-washy person. So you're gonna have a hard time getting me to like really sell something. No, um, no, no. You don't. You don't need to. <laughs> uh, I. I mean, I. Like, it's certainly like I know the tooling very well, and so I can be very productive in it because I know yeah. like how things work and how to move around and accomplish stuff. And that's definitely not true for everybody. Um, yeah. And um, you know, I. I, I I like the I think the generic data stuff is mm -hmm. interesting to contrast with the more nominally typed functional programming you see in um, in Haskell etc. Where mm -hmm. like people uh, they model things by creating a new type. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so you're like you've created a, a new kind of thing, and it's something that can really only exist in your program. Mm -hmm. um, and like if somebody created a type in another program that happened to have the exact same name, you mm -hmm. like you it, it means something different probably. Yeah. Um, and so like your modeling only uh, only talking about what about things inside your program. Um, and I think Clojure has this approach where it's it's attempting to um, give you modeling tools and, and other tools that apply outside of program as well, like can be used in a, an open ecosystem of software. Um, I I have this analogy with Erlang where Erlang is to a large extent about concurrency and mm -hmm. 
I feel like the rationale there is that um, you're going to have to like run your program on multiple machines and have a distributed program at some point anyhow if your program is important enough. Um, so why don't we just bite the bullet and write all of the code from the beginning as if it's a distributed program. And if it happens to be all in one machine, then that's cool, but it doesn't need to be. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like Clojure does that kind of thing, but not about concurrency necessarily. I mean, a lot of like Clojure's concurrency stuff only works on one machine. Yep. Um, but it's about, it's about the data modeling um, and the fact that uh, like the data is immutable because once you're passing data in between programs, it's effectively immutable anyhow. Like I can't call some web service and get a JSON response and then locally manipulate that response and ex expect that that has any effect on what's happening in the server. Mm. Like it's, it's immutable in that sense. And so, and I should treat it immutably. Um, and so I feel like Clojure has the same sort of bite the bullet strategy of saying like you have to pass immutable data around once you grow outside of a single process anyhow. So let's do that inside the program as well. Mm -hmm. um, so ideally that, you know, leads you to programs that you can more easily split out because they, they're structured in such a way that you're just passing immutable data from one part to another. Then you can do that from one machine to another and it, and it behaves the same way. Mm. Um, so, that's uh, like that to me feels like something you can't do in the statically typed functional programming paradigm. Not yeah. not because of static types in particular, but because of like the nominal typing approach of make yeah. a new yeah. kind of thing to describe your data. Hmm. So that's that's why I think it would be really interesting to have a um, structural typed you know, static type system for something that's like closure. Um, I don't, I'm not sure that that could be bolted onto Clojure. I mean, I know that's what the core types library tried to do. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert on static type systems, so I can't, can't comment too intelligently on that, but, um, you know, it could be that one of the reasons that that didn't become more popular is that the language wasn't designed with that in mind. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm sure it was difficult to, to make a, a sound type system that described whatever closure happened to do. Um, yeah, I think it works okay. I think it's just a, it's an idiot, it's a, it's not idiomatic. So it's an ecosystem problem, problem actually, you know, because you've you've got types in like you know one part of your program, but not in others, and it makes the value proposition a bit less, you know, compelling basically. Yeah, and the the libraries don't have them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I, it, it was really slow for a while, too, I remember. Yeah, yeah. So that, that made it difficult. I tried using it for a year or two. Yeah, well, interesting project, though. And he, he's, nice. he's got his PhD, so everyone's happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what matters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, I think we are, wow, one and a half hour almost. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, are there any other topics that you want to touch upon? Oh, uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> what, what do you like to talk about? Maybe, maybe a quick, uh, quick um, gist of uh, computationology talk that you gave. Oh, okay. What is it about? 
Uh, yeah, so that 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 talk was um, a like an excuse for me to describe one of my favorite things from computer science that mm-hmm. um, I feel like is fairly unknown among programmers, um, largely because it's entirely useless, uh, as far as I can tell. Um, but I, I, I've got this, like, this part of me that's really fascinated with like the set theory, infinite sets, that sort of thing, like, you know, different sizes of infinity. Um, I, and I ran into that like 10 years ago and it was probably my, one of my favorite things ever. Um, so this is a part of computer science that, that sort of overlaps with that a little bit. Um, and the, the talk itself, I, I broke into two parts. So like the second half is, is what I was just describing or didn't even describe yet. Um, the first half is slightly more familiar, which is, um, computational complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the, the talk is framed as what, uh, like what things happen mathematically when you ask the question, what can computers do? Um, and so it's just like looking at mathematical structures that come out of that. Um, and so like one direction you can go with it is like, what can you do under certain constraints, like, like time or space, um, so that's what computational complexity is about. And there were, uh, you know, that's a, like a, a topic I enjoy. I, I don't know a whole lot about it the way an actual researcher would. Um, but I think I know more than average about it, like enough to talk about it for a half hour and point out interesting things. Um, so, you know, like I go over, you know, I go into enough detail about what P versus NP means and then some of the like more stranger associated phenomena. Um, I, most of the talks I do are like, I pick some like overly ambitious topic because I really enjoy trying to figure out how to explain complicated things. Like that's, it's one of my favorite activities. And so that's what most of my public speaking is. And I don't know if it uh, is a good idea, uh, you know, or if I succeed. Um, but, you know, I, I think I've, I've done okay a few times. Um, and so I, I, I've kept trying up till now. Um, so anyhow, first half is computational complexity. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I mean, there's a lot of topics like this, like I did this with quantum computing where like there's this topic that, um, a lot of programmers know some surface that, um, um, amount about, you know, like quantum computing is a topic that you'll see a lot of, uh, summaries about and just like hand wavy stuff. That's not really like it avoids all of the mathematical details. Mm. Um, and is probably misleading because of that. Um, and so I, you know, I like taking topics like that that people know a little bit about and then trying to go deeper in an hour than anybody else would normally try to by like just trying to think of clever ways to explain things quickly or illustrate them visually, something like that. Um, so so I, that's part of what I did with computational complexity was, you know, like people know that P versus NP means, you know, some sound bitey thing. Um, so I tried to explain it much more like, detail and in a way where you can actually understand what the implications are and that sort of thing. But anyhow, the second half of the talk is uh, about uh, a topic that I don't know what the, if there's a good official name for it. Um, 
I think sometimes it's called recursion theory or theory of computation or um, it's it's basically if you like you take the the topic of the halting problem and then you just like run after that and see what else you can figure out that has very little implication for programming. Um, like so, the main idea is about um, the the concept of an oracle, which which comes up in computational complexity also. But it's like what what could you do with a computer if you had a magical oracle that could solve a particular kind of problem for you? Um, so like the most uh, straightforward thing you can you can do with respect to the halting problem is say, well, the halting problem is not solvable by normal computers, but if we had a magic oracle that knew the solution to the halting problem for every input, and then we like stapled that to a computer so it could use it as a library or something like that, then what kind of computers would we have and what would they be able to do? Um, and, you know, they'd be able to solve the halting problem kind of trivially, and they'd be able to do lots of related things. Um, but then there'd be another halting problem about those computers. So we have, like, these fantasy computers that can solve the halting problem, and you can run programs on them that may or may not halt. Um, and so we've got this, like, fantasy halting problem, and those computers cannot solve the fantasy halting problem. It's, it's unsolvable. So you, need, so you need next level. Yeah, you need. So now you you can posit that you have a an oracle for the fantasy halting problem, and now you have these even more powerful <laughs> computers that can solve even more impossible problems. And obviously, you can you know you can take this as many steps as you want. Um, yeah. And you can go further than that. Like it gets really it gets really bizarre. Mm. Um, so that's that's what that's talking about. Nice. All of the like weird things that come up when you do that. It's basically a talk I'm about sure religion. There is a video of it. Or... Yeah, yeah, sure. Mm. Relig the religion video, of, of, of numbers. Mm. Okay, I think um, maybe I think you need to come back again uh, to explain all the quantum computing and uh, <laughs> and computationology for for us again. Okay, that would be fun. For now, for now, I think um, he's already came uh, back. We got to the meat of the. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we are we'll, we're going to continue on the next episode uh once we get dig deeper into into 71 and then yeah you know, point I, think, I think that that requires its own its own episode you know like the whole library and yeah makes right. sense i think that's valid yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so thanks a lot gary thanks for uh thanks for taking the time and um you know uh thanks for the test check of course you know bringing this kind of testing uh to to closure and hopefully um you will find uh, more time to build the things that are going to make money for the business <laughs> <laughs> using closure or otherwise yeah <laughs> right. whatever well, that thanks. is thank um, you very much i had a great yeah. time thank you and ray yeah. any no, um, thanks, gary. last words yeah. for this episode thank you gary yeah it was really good uh very yeah. interesting and uh yeah i'm a big fan of uh of the quine db so yeah, <laughs> let's keep it going well, it's good to hear <laughs> so all we need to do now is write migration scripts from every other database to CoinDB, yeah. and then we are ready. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'll CoinDB on cloud. I'll uh, <laughs> I'll accept pull requests along those lines. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. So, um, I think this is the episode number fifty-two, and um, maybe a quick uh, logistical announcement. I think we'll be there at um, not I think, but uh, we will be there, uh, Ray and I, and probably Walter as well at uh, Heart of Closure. Uh, mm -hmm. August second and third in Leuven. Uh So hopefully, if um, if this episode is out before that event, <laughs> so 
uh, stop by and say hi. That's that's and, a, that's um, a, that, we're also on Patreon. That's a, what, so. just for, that, that's a, a a closure conference I can cycle to. Yeah, so it's it's super close, <laughs> and um, I think that gives away like it's in the middle of nowhere, but hey, it's Belgium, so you know, <laughs> Belgium, man, Belgium, um, as the guide would say. Um, of course, we're also on Patreon, uh, so check us out. And um, yeah, I think uh, next time uh, we'll continue this uh, amazing closure podcast journey into episode number fifty-three soon. And thanks again, Gary, for taking the time on Sunday. And hopefully, we'll meet in real life at some point. Great, thank you. Goodbye. Cheers, guys. Lemmy from Motorhead. The Ace of Spades! <laughs> <laughs>